This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Daly. Our guest this week is Emily Score, CEO of Growth Energy. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by Bayer. Learn more about the Bayer Bee Care Program at beehealth.bayer.us. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with Emily Score next. While growers and beekeepers may seem unlikely friends, the work within both industries easily intersects to create positive environmental impact all around. That's why Bayer created the CARE program. CARE is an acronym reminding growers to communicate, be aware, reduce dust, and ensure correct planting practices to reduce risk to pollinators during planting season. Now, in its sixth year, Bayer encourages growers to embrace responsible stewardship practices with four simple tips. Communicate planting activities with neighboring beekeepers. Be aware of wind speed and direction during planting. Help reduce the amount of dust released by using Fluency Agent Advanced as their seed lubricant and ensure seed is planted correctly. Visit beehealth.bear.us for more information on land and product stewardship. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. Seven White House meetings on the nation's fuel industry and the cost of compliance with the renewable fuel standard have yielded a pledge from President Trump to sell E15 blended fuel year-round. But the renewable fuels industry is still concerned about a final decision from the administration. Growth Energy's Emily Score says President Trump is a deal-maker. In his mindset, he wants to give something to both sides. And so what's up for debate right now is what is the give to the refineries? We would argue there is absolutely no need for a give. An RVP waiver is a win-win for everyone because you, it encourages greater blending of uh, biofuel. And as you blend more, you're creating more of those credits into the system. And it brings the price down for those who choose not to blend and prefer want to buy a credit and hand that into the government. So we think it's a win-win, but the president really is quite committed to, all right, we've got to give the other side something. And so each conversation, what the idea of what do we give, it changes. For, for a period, it was a RIN cap. We adamantly opposed it, and I'm proud to say that that idea, as we have been told, is off the table completely. There will be no RIN cap. But he's evolving his thinking as to what he wants to be giving to the refiners. With regard to E15, there is a reed vapor pressure that you mentioned, the RVP. Is that current? So this is a a measurement of a fuel's volatility. And this is a 27-year-old law that we have that was put on the books before fuels like E15 ever existed. So back in 1990 with the Clean Air Act, Congress gave, they had these volatility emissions, and they said, we're going to give an exemption to fuel with E10 because we know it has such good uh, benefits in terms of much cleaner tailpipe emissions. Now, what they didn't say is, and we're going to give this exemption to fuels with greater than 10% blend because those fuels didn't exist. All we need to do is update a very outdated regulation to make it current with today's marketplace. And yet we are seeing a tremendous amount of political resistance, and that's where the conversation is right now. So with regard to E15, if the administration is supporting E15, as has been stated, then what's the process that would finally allow E15 to be sold year-round? Is this an overnight decision and an overnight answer? I wish it could be, but it's not. The process to make this a reality is through the Environmental Protection Agency. So EPA would go through a rulemaking process, 
and it's a slow process. There's a public comment period, so it would take several months, and that's the process by which the president's promise for E15 waiver becomes a reality uh, for all of us uh, in agriculture and, and all of the consumers. With regard to the RENs for ethanol produced for export, I mean, Growth Energy, you and the corn industry have actively been pursuing export markets. So where's the rub for allowing REN credits for exports? Well, first and foremost, RENs are tied to the Renewable Fuel Standard, and that is a program entirely designed to increase domestic blending of biofuel. That's about domestic use. So to start saying all of the gallons that we are exporting and not using in the U.S., we're going to count against our targets, our blending targets in the U.S., that runs entirely counter to the entire purpose of the Renewable Fuel Standard. Another issue that we have with it is that we have trading partners who have already said, if you do that, we believe that's the U.S. government subsidizing American ethanol and we will retaliate and we will start putting our own tariffs on American imports. So that's something, I mean, that the global environment has already said that's something that we have tremendous problems with. And what you're also doing is you are just eroding the domestic demand for ethanol, which again runs counter to the renewable fuel standard. So we have a lot of concerns with it. We've been very vocal in voicing those concerns. I will say Growth Energy did a study on this uh, maybe about six months ago when the idea first popped, it's popped up. And our report finds that you would have an immediate drop of corn prices by 56 cents per bushel if this were to happen. You would reduce our uh, jobs supported by U.S. ethanol exports, 25,000. So that would have real material impact on our constituency, and we're making sure that the government officials understand this. In the late winter, Secretary of Agriculture Sonny Perdue suggested he was about the business of finding a way to use more renewable energy. Yet we've seen some reports as late that he might be favoring this RENs for ethanol produced for export. My sense is that the USDA is trying to better understand this. And so they're getting input from a variety of, of sources, including growth energy and the biofuels industry. Um, you know, Mr. Purdue, you know, I believe from my own conversations with him and, and watching him and listening to what he's saying, he, he does believe we've got to maintain a strong market, domestic market for biofuels. But, you know, he also reports to the president. And so he is probably trying to figure out, is there a middle ground? Um, and our job is to make sure that he understands what the implications for all these things are to rural America. To the disdain of a number of elected leaders in Washington, namely Grassley and Ernst, we discovered that the EPA administrator had been granting hardship waivers, large volumes of hardship waivers for refiners. This is a day where we're struggling for a definition of what is mead and what is milk. We've struggled over a period of time for a definition of what is a wetland. And and now perhaps we're struggling to find a definition for what is a hardship waiver. Why is that important? Under this administrator, Mr. Pruitt, the EPA has quadrupled the number of waivers that they have given to refineries claiming hardship. And the result of that, Every waiver represents a gallon of homegrown biofuel that can't make its way to consumers, that can't contribute to U.S. energy security, and can't grow the U.S. economy. If you look at the amount of waivers that they have provided, that is over a billion gallons of demand destruction that's taken place for us. So 
when you have a president who has pledged a commitment to a strong renewable fuel standard and somebody who works for him does something like quadrupling the number of hardship waivers, those are totally counter to one another. And Mr. Pruitt is undermining the president's pledge to rural America. So there has been a tremendous outcry throughout Capitol Hill with our supporters in the, in the Midwest and, and with us saying, wait a minute, this is setting a horrible precedent. You are setting us back to 2013 levels. I mean, this is setting us backward. What, what is taking place with these small refinery waivers. So we need to understand why they're doing it, what justification they have, um, and we've pushed the president to make sure that moving forward there are more stringent guidelines and much more transparency and clarity in terms of what the EPA is doing. Senator Grassley has called on Administrator Pruitt to do a better job of implementing the RFS, and it does seem from this reporter's perspective that they might be saying one thing and doing something else, where the administrator has said that he would enforce and uh, work toward uh, using 15 billion gallons of renewable ethanol annually, but then to grant these hardship waivers, the data suggests we were under 15 billion. He's saying one thing and he's doing another, and we have to look at his actions and the impact of his actions, which are to undermine the renewable fuel standard and to reduce demand for American biofuels within our own borders. And so uh, there have been a lot of conversations here in Washington, and I, I, I thank uh, the Heartland and our congressional supporters for just standing firm and being continuing to be a vocal voice for us because we've got to make sure this president understands the impact of what the EPA is doing. But there are two sides to every equation, and even in the Senate, there are those who are supporters of the oil industry who support those hardship waivers. So this isn't a cut-and-dry decision. We're in the world of politics, and if you look at the conversations at the White House and, and the senators attending, you've got senators attending whose constituents, you know, Senators Grassley and Ernst are from Iowa, and very much embrace the biofuels industry, and then you have Senator Cruz from Texas, and he's representing a, an entirely different constituency that doesn't support the renewable fuel standards. So heads are very much budding on this issue. I spoke with Illinois Congressman John Shimkus, uh, who obviously is a subcommittee chair on the Energy Committee, and, and he mentioned that there is a motivation to rewrite the RFS and the nation's energy policy uh, before that 2022 deadline coming up. Do you see movement toward that? Are you encouraged or concerned or both? I, I do see a lot of conversation about RFS reform. My challenge and our challenge right now is that every proposal that has been put on the table under the name of RFS reform has been about cutting or capping our ability to grow the marketplace, which is entirely changing the principles of the renewable fuel standard. And so the conversation would have to begin with, and here biofuel and corn growers is the path forward for you guys to grow and prosper and have an even playing field and the ability to compete for the gas tank. So that's where we would need the conversation to be going because right now the proposals we've seen reflect an attempt to move us backward as opposed to allow us to keep moving forward. It seems that as we talk about energy policy, we talk about what's good for the oil industry, or we talk about what's good for the renewable fuel industry, but we don't spend a lot of time in the center specifically talking about what's absolutely the best for the nation. And in there, politics seems to skew the matter. 
what is the best from your perspective for the nation and the market share that goes along with what's best for the nation? Well, what's best for the nation is what's best for the consumers. Where we want to go and where we need to land as a country is to a place where we have high-octane fuels that are made with mid-level blends of ethanol. There's been a lot of research, auto manufacturers, academic institutions, other independent firms, government, uh, government laboratories. And if you look at our goals of greater fuel efficiency, greater fuel economy, we want to have fewer uh, transportation carbon re- emissions reductions. If you look at those goals and to do so in a way that consumers, it doesn't break, b- break uh, the pocketbook, you want a, a high-octane fuel that has about an E20 to an E30 blend. That is where we need to land in a place that it gives the auto manufacturers a fuel that is optimized for their engine of the future. It puts the consumer in a place where they've got options and choices, um, and it's good for the environment as, as a whole. So that's that should be our mecca for all of us. You testified before a subcommittee hearing recently in Washington on high-octane fuels and high-efficiency vehicles, the challenges and the opportunities. And I listened to most of that, and I was taken back by a statement of Dan Nicholson of GM, and he suggested that automobiles will change more in the next five years than they have in the past 50. That is a profound statement, and obviously this has a lot to do with the fuel of those vehicles. Is it electric? Is it hydrogen? Uh, is it renewable? The, the directive that we take toward policy may be handcuffing what the auto industry ultimately needs. Yes, I mean, the auto industry has got to respond to um, the government standards and regulations around fuel emissions, and we call them the CAFE standards. So the Trump administration is evaluating those. What the auto industry would prefer is one standard throughout the country. You don't want California to have standards that are different from the rest of the country. So that is that is a conundrum for the automaker is how do we have an auto that complies with regulations, but it's also an automobile that a consumer wants to purchase and drive. And so where biofuels come in is we believe, even with all of the options out there, liquid transportation fuels are going to remain the dominant fuel source for many years to come. The more ethanol you use, the greater the environmental impact because of reduced emissions, carbon reduction, and the more flexibility you're giving the automaker in terms of providing a high-octane fuel. So that's where the conversation is heading, but it is very much, there's a lot of regulations that come into play that will drive those innovations. It's common to pull up to the pump today, and there's 87. 89 and, and 93 octane that may have a 10% ethanol blender. I might be able to pull to a blender pump and, and ratchet up to an E85. But listening through the hearing, there was a suggestion that the octane level of U.S. fuel is a lot less than a lot of our partners in the globe. That's, that's the case, yes, and it should be higher. And, you know, importantly for us, you can achieve high octane in multiple ways. You can use petroleum-based products. We certainly think that it's greener and cleaner uh, to be using ethanol as that octane source. But higher octane helps contribute to higher fuel economy and fuel efficiency. So if we're discussing now the long debate about finally being able to sell E15 year-round, it appears to me that this is shadowed by decisions that now the auto industry and the and the nation have to make about what are we going to do with regard to octane of liquid fuels in in the months to come. Well, you know, I 
you know, I, I look at it differently. Um, you need to walk before you need to run. And so what's really important for us as you look at our growth opportunities in the short term would be if we start moving from an E10 to an E15. And what we need that RVP relief to really open up the opportunities for more retailers to offer E15. When you do that, it's kind of a proof of concept, and it's showing the American consumer, and it's showing the automaker that, look, when consumers have access to these higher blends, they're going to seek them out, and they're going to put them in their tank again and again. So we need RVP in the short term so that we that can jumpstart a big jump in terms of growth um, while working toward the mid to longer term goal of, of a higher blend across the board. What does the renewable energy industry need from this Congress? What does it need from this administration? From both Congress and the administration, what every industry, including ours, seeks is certainty. When you look at the renewable fuel standard, for example, as the EPA administers it, Give us a rule on time. Be consistent with congressional intent. The intent is to blend more biofuel every year. So come out with targets that increase the volume of blending every year. It, something that simple and straightforward would be tremendously helpful so that we don't have to fight every year. So that's, that is my first ask. Um, policy should give us a, a level playing field. You don't want government to have their thumb on the scale of one industry or the other. And when it comes to the fuel marketplace, it is not an open competitive marketplace. It is inherently closed. That's why we need the renewable fuel standard. That's why we need reed vapor pressure relief so we can sell illegal fuel year-round. E15 is the only fuel that is treated differently by the government with regulations. It's utterly nonsensical. So give us some of those changes. Give us that deregulation that this president promised that gives biofuels the ability to compete openly and fairly, and that's that's the best that we can ask for. How encouraged are you of countries like Japan and China making steps toward cleaner air and a demand for renewable fuel? It's wonderful to see this. There is a huge global appetite for American ethanol and biofuel in general because these countries are realizing what we did 10 years ago, which is if you have domestic goals of clean air, clean water, uh, affordable gasoline, rural economic development, ethanol is a ready solution. And as you're looking for clean octane, we are the cheapest, cleanest octane source available. So the fact that Mexico is opening up to ethanol, that Japan is opening up, that China is is talking about their standards of increased use of ethanol, and Canada as well, these are wonderful trends. They're wonderful for the environment, they're wonderful for the globe, and they're great for rural America and the biofuels industry as well. How do you respond to those who say the renewable fuel industry has a mandated market share and that really those mandates should go away and allow the free market system to take over? I get those questions a lot, and my answer is I wish it were a free market system. If it were, we would not need the renewable fuel standard. If I was selling a grocery product, I could go to the grocery store and say, can you put my product on the shelf alongside the five competitors in the space? You can't do that with gasoline because of the way that the fuel system is controlled by some of the major refineries. And so we need government to kind of correct that market imperfection. And the renewable fuel standard allows us to compete. Read vapor pressure, that simply allows us to have our legal fuel sold year-round. It gives us no advantage. It just gives us the, the ability to compete like every other fuel. Emily Scar, we want to thank you very much for taking time to be with us on this edition of Open Mic. It is Open Mic, and you have an open forum. 
Well, my message, every opportunity that I get to, to everyone listening is continue to be vocal. More than anything, what you can do is be vocal in terms of when you go to the gas station, put that, put those higher blends in the car, but also let your elected officials know what's important. Let them know when they're being helpful and they're doing a good job, and let them know when they need to be doing a better job for us, because we rely on um, our senators, our governors, to be helpful in terms of influencing the administration. And so be vocal um, and agitate because your voices count and make a real difference. Our thanks to Growth Energy's Emily Score, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by Bayer. Learn more about the Bayer Be Care program at behealth.bayer.us. For AgriPulse, I'm Jeff Delling.